Kia ora and welcome to this episode of Better Off Read. It's episode 58 um, and in this episode I'm talking with Helen Heath, poet, essayist and teacher Helen Heath. Um, Helen recently published an outstanding and um, astounding collection of poetry which poses the question, are friends electric? Um, we got together to talk about Fleur Adcock's poem Gas. Um, Gas was first published in Adcock's 1971 collection High Tide in the Garden but it's also available in her collected poems 1960 to 2000. Um, Helen suggested that um, we read this and I'm very grateful that she did. Um, this poem has changed what I thought I knew about poetry and um, changed what I thought I knew about a lot of other things like bodies and such. It's it's just a magnificent, magnificent um, poem and also a really helpful um, jumping off place to Helen Heath's new book, Our Friends Electric, um, which offers a vivid and moving vision of a past, present and future mediated by technology. Um, I am going to, the first thing you're going to hear after this introduction is me reading the second stanza of Gas and then um, yeah at some stage I will read a poem by Helen Heath Um, and yeah I hope you really enjoy the podcast. Thank you. Gas by Fleur Adcock 2 It was gas, we think. Insects and reptiles survived it, and most of the birds, also the larger mammals. Grown cattle, a few sheep, horses, the landlord's Alsatian. I shall miss the cats. And in this village, about a fifth of the people. It culled scientifically within a fixed range, sparing the insignificant and the chosen strong. It let us sleep for 14 hours and wake, not caring whether we woke or not, in a soft antiseptic silence. There was a faint odour of furniture wax. We know now, of course, more or less what happened, but then it was rather puzzling to wake from a thick, dark sleep, lying on the carpeted floor in the saloon bar of the coach and horses, to sense others lying near, very still, and nearest to me, this new second self. Hi Helen. Hi Pip, how are you? I'm good. Oh that's good, thank you so much. We're at um, Te Aha, um, which is this wonderful new space um, in Wellington. It's incredible. Thank you very much for organising a room for us. Oh, pleasure. It's very cool and thank you to them for letting us be here. Um, so today we are sort of celebrating um, the publication of Our Friends Electric, which is your, I was trying to count, is it your third book or your fourth book? Um, well, it's, officially it's my third. My first book was um, a little chat book um, that Helen Rickley put out through Seraph Press, and then the second one was um, Graft, and now this is number three. Oh, it's a very cool book, I like it a lot. Um, so to celebrate this, we thought that we'd talk about a poem um, that you've chosen, which I think is very apt. Um, and yeah, do you want to tell us what that poem is? <laughs> so um, the poem is called Gas and it's by Fleur Adcock. Um, it was written in the early 70s and um, shall I talk a bit about what it is? I'll talk us about the poem. So on, tell us what it means. <laughs> what does it mean? Yeah, what does it mean? Well, <laughs> I can tell you what it, lo- it looks like. It's like, it's quite a long poem. It's like seven pages long. It's got 10 sections, it's all in free verse, 
and it's a narrative but it's what makes it a bit different for me is that um, it's a speculative narrative and um, and in mainstream poetry it's that's not really very common and when I stumbled across this poem I was really sort of blown away because it was sort of quite subtly done um, so what happens shall I do spoiler alert yeah go on spoiler alert, spoiler alert. <laughs> so um, the the poem starts off quite gently with um, a description of a body um, and then it's revealed that the body is a duplicate of the first body that's exploring it and then um, we find out that this strange thing has happened a gas has has come over a sleepy little English village not unlike something I imagine in Midsummer Murders <laughs> <laughs> um, and everyone has collapsed and then woken up with a duplicate of themselves um, and and then it happens again and then it happens again um, and it's really creepy. <laughs> it's just so wonderful. I, like I was trying to think. Um, I'm really glad you said that because I thought it would be a gross generalization. But you know, I've read poetry which is sort of um, about the poet. I've read poetry which is about other people. I've read poetry which is about love and grief and loss and all those sorts of things. But I think that this is kind of a form of poetry that we don't see a lot. Eh? Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. And I just wonder, what does it mean when a poet, instead of like, instead of deciding to write a novel or a short story, what does it mean when this kind of speculative world is put into this kind of shape, like when it's put into poems? When the lines don't reach the edge yes, of the page. Yes, when the lines don't reach the edge of the page, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, well, um, yeah, Mark Hamry was asking me something similar the other day, he was saying, you know, why did, why did you make your collection poetry instead of a novel or an essay or or anything like that and I, I guess it's the same reason that you write any kind of poetry and that you it's it's a dis, distillation it's the the very essence of like the fragmentary nature of it um, that really appeals to me and I think that works um, to this poem the gases um, advantage that whole fragmentation and the way that time passes in the poem there's like these little leaps um, between sections and I think that's something that would be quite different in a, in a novel or a short story or an essay yeah because yeah, that's what I was sort of that was one of the things that I thought worked so incredibly well in this and that I think I learned from this as well is that because of the um, I don't know what the right word is but because of the um, is it concentration of language? Like mm. because of that, there isn't like a an incessant need to explain the science of what's happening in a way. I, th I think that's I think that's really true. Um, I think that in a poem, you can you can put out some crazy things and just move on. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you say, there's there's not there's so for example, when guess there's no massive explanation. I mean, I think she. The most explanation she says is that it was the gas, we think. Insects and reptiles survived it, and most of the birds, also the larger mammals, grown cattle, a few sheep, horses, the landlord's Alsatian, 
I shall miss the cats. <laughs> um, and then she goes on to say, it culls scientifically within a fixed range, sparing the insignificant and the chosen strong. So I think that's enough. Mm, mm. That's, and I think that's it's just delightful as a reader to be able to um, just have just enough to then um, have, find your own space in the poem. Because mm. it's so much like that, isn't it? Like, I guess... Um, yeah, when there's when something suddenly happens, like the experience inside it is more like that, isn't it? Mm. Like I was just thinking about cell phones the other day. Like a lot of people don't understand, you know. Like we, we live with them and we are with them, but we don't understand. We don't them. understand how they work, <laughs> or a microwave, or any of all, all those things that we're using every day. Yeah, and I think what was interesting for me as well with this is the idea that it's a gas that does it, and it sort of it made me think of sort of coming out of the Second World War and how. You know, like the thing that's around you is what you'll speculate into the future. Do you think that's true to a certain extent? I think so. I, th- I think we'll, we we know what we know. Hmm. We're, 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 we're in, our, in our time, we're in our place. Um, and, and why not? I mean, I, I don't know. I think the other thing about gas is that it's, it's un- something you can't see. Hmm. Maybe you just get a soft smell. But it's kind of like, it's, it makes the poem even more mysterious because it's not even, you can't even see the machine that's producing the gas. It just kind of appears out of nowhere and doesn't matter where you are, outside, inside, it gets you. So, I, yeah, in a way, I think that's even the, the better part of the, it being gas is that it's just, there's, there's no escape and there's no, you can't see it, to, you can't run away from it. Yeah, it's like really creepy. It is really creepy, and I was trying to work out like that is that is one of the questions I had in here. Like, um, and it sort of bleeds a little bit into our friends electric. But what is so scary about the simulacrum, and what what's so scary about the double, and what's so scary about things that seem to act like us but aren't us? Yeah, I mean, is that part of it, or do you think that it is more the, because you talked a little bit about sleeping and waking as well, that's another big um, motif in this poem, is the fact that there's, there's sleeping and waking up. Yeah. yeah. Like, what do you think it is that's at the base of its scariness? Well, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's I think because it's so scary because there's a number of things, so I think that, yeah, that whole, um, that whole uncanny valley um, experience that's going on in the poem that um, it's it's me but it's not me that is that is a really spooky thing um, also um, that whole idea about um, how do we know that we are real that we are unique and we are, are special um, yeah I mean unless you're a twin I mean and even a twin will say that their twin is nothing like them mm-hmm. so that's something that I mean that that combination of the the uncanny valley and the not knowing your own boundaries where you're, you're like your body here's my body my body ends here at my skin um, and then I, that we have an idea that we're we're sort of separate we're individuals but um, yeah in this poem we're not <laughs> we're not unique we're just another one and how do we know that that um, what did she say? There's a great bit in the poem about um, she's talking about who who gave birth to who. 
How was she torn out of me? Was it the urgent wrench of birth, a matter of hard, breathless shoving, but there's no blood? Or Eve from Adam's rib, quick and surgical, but there's no scar? Or did I burgeon with fleshy buds along my limbs, growing a new substance from that gas I drank in to double myself? And she goes on. Um, it's better to say... Oh, she describes it. She's right. <laughs> or was it my skin slipped off like the skin of a peanut to reveal two neat sections face to face and identical within? <laughs> yes, we'd better say it was like this. For if it was birth, which was the mother? Since both have equal rights to our past, she might just justly claim to have created me. I just, I just. That, oh yeah, that's so. That, that blows my mind. So it's like, yeah, how do we know? That yeah, who's who's the original? Mm. Yeah, and like the fact that it all happens in sleep is so horrifying as well. Like I mean, that just I think that is just really horrifying as well. And I really love like when you read that, you can feel why the so needed to be a poem because the the language, like the diction and the repetition and all the games that are being played with language, are putting tension on that moment, aren't they? There's totally there's tension and just yeah like. I, I don't know, I don't think a novel can be quite that creepy. Mm. No, I totally agree, I totally agree. And that's the thing that we don't often go to poetry for, eh? Creepiness. Creepiness. <laughs> I think we should have more creepy poems. Yeah. Yes, yes, you're, you're forging ahead in that part. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think creepiness is so good there. It's the, yeah, like you say, it's the intensity of the of the language and the 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 way that the I mean, it's still a long poem, I mean, it's like, you know, seven pages, ten sections, but it's still... Um, it's a whole novel compacted into seven pages, which kind of ramps up the intensity of it. Mm. Mm. Can we talk a little bit about what happens later on in the poem? Um, my understanding, like my reading might not be right, but my understanding is they start trying to die. Like they yeah. put themselves in precarious situations so that when the gas comes, they fall to their death That's or, right. you know, That's like right. as they yeah. fall asleep. Um, sorry, I shouldn't be laughing. Um, but yeah, it's such an interesting... Well, the idea that it's you just can't live with that many duplications of mm. yourself. Um, and like you say, yeah, they sort of... They, um, they put themselves in really precarious places like um, in water or up a ladder um, just to, uh, to invite death. Um, and I... I just yeah, what did she call it? She called it a um, a good harvest when when several of them fall to their deaths <laughs> from the top of a ladder, um, and I think that's really interesting. It's you know can the can we how do we react when we find out that we're not special, that we're not unique, that we're not um, original. And just such an interesting maths problem as well. Sorry to be... Oh, um, yeah, yeah, oh, totally. you know, yeah, yeah. Every one doubles, doesn't it? So, so you yeah. start with one and you get two and then you get So even four. if you die, yeah. then, then there'll be another one left behind. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. It's like, you know, you put a grain of rice on the... Um, on the first square of a chessboard, and then you, yeah, and then you reach by the end of the chessboard to be keep doubling the amount of rice you, and you've got this infinite amount of rice. <laughs> it just, yeah, it so creeps me out. It so creeps me. But out. I, I, I really liked her solution. I mean, it's, yeah, spoiler alert. Um, the way that they, the, the final two, um, both go out into the snow to make themselves beds, and hopefully. Neither of them will wake and take it into their own hands. And I, I just think, yeah, I, 
I just find it really interesting that not being the original, not being unique, it can be enough to drive you to not want to exist. Mm. Yeah, and like, just I'm totally, um, I just, I just can't hold off on our friends' electric any longer. <laughs> but um, this idea of the real and the not real, you know, because as you're saying, like this idea of being, I think in Westworld there was even a line the other night where they said what's real, and I think he said that which is original or something, or that you know that which there cannot be copied or something like that. And I think I'm just wondering how these ideas of the real and the non-real, you know, like, there's so much, you know, tro- you know, conversation at the moment about how we're not living our real lives or our best lives if we're online, and yeah, yeah, let's make that boring. <laughs> um, and I just wonder, how does the real and the not real that sort of comes in gas and then moves into our friends electric, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I I always feel a bit nauseous when people talk about their real, you know, like living their real, their best lives or their real lives. I, I just think, well, I was thinking about this idea the other day in relation to literature. I was thinking that well, people talk about online lives not being real, virtual lives not being real, but then I was thinking about how in a novel you have a virtual world. Um, and in some ways it's more real <laughs> than, than life and I, I just and I think the same can be said of some poetry I just yeah I'm really adverse to trying to value um, meet space basically I just think that um, there's no point in trying to um, say that it's black and white it's really complex it's really um, integrated when you read a novel or a poem um, your brain has to you're just looking at black marks on a page right it's not like when you're looking at a piece of art a painting you're seeing something that your senses are, are working with or if you smell something or if you're looking at a sculpture and you're touching it you've got your senses are interacting with it and you're having an experience of it in the real world but then they've uh, neurologists have done research around the effects of narrative and reading in the brain and the same parts of your brain that light up when you're having a um, when you're smelling something or if you're doing a physical activity if you read about those those the same parts of your brain that light up when you're doing the actual physical act light up so in some ways our brains can't really distinguish it. So why are we making a big deal about making the distinguishing the difference between you know the real world and the and the virtual in some ways? I just think mm, that's more slippery than that. I remember um, Cory Doctorow. Um, I saw him speak at the beginning of the year, and he says this freaky thing where. Um, that the yogurt he had this morning has lived more of a life than any of the characters in his book. And it's just it just kind of blew my mind in that way. And that's what I love, because in Our Friends Electric, there's a poem about the um, sort of, um, what would you call it, hysteria around the printed word, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, around the idea that we might write, you know, that technology. Reproach, circa 370 BCE, by Helen Heath. You, poet... You're hungry to be read, but your words just create forgetfulness. This trust in the written strips memory and selves 
You aid only reminiscence and a false truth. They'll read a million words from the apparently omniscient and will know nothing. They will be tiresome company, a reality show having the show of wisdom without the reality. Note, this poem includes selected texts from Plato's Phaedrus, circa 370 BCE, a dialogue between Socrates and Phaedrus on the invention of writing. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, um, when I was doing the research towards this book, one of the um, blogs that I read a lot of was um, Giovanni Tiso's blog, um, Bat Bing Bing, and... Um, and he writes a lot about how really sort of these anxieties that we have around technology, they're not new, these our modern anxieties, they've been going back for a long, long time. I mean, and the, yeah, one of the, the poem that you were talking about in the, in the book that's referencing um, Phaedrus, 370 BC, <laughs> and yeah, they're, they're, they're worrying that if you if you're writing things down, which is a technology, then you're going to be stripping yourself of your memory and thereby your humanity. So, like, it's it's not a new concept, and and I don't feel like our humanity is being stripped by the invention of writing. I think things are weak. It's impossible to, to remain static. You know, we're we're continually changing and adapting, and I think that humanity changes and adapts and we're not suddenly monsters because we write <laughs> or use a cell phone or yeah I mean there are addictive parts of technology that um, some of us you know struggle with but it's I don't think it's sort of undermining our humanity mm. yeah. yeah why um <clears throat> I know I mean there are lots of good reasons but I'm going to ask the question so that you can answer but why write a book with in, which intersects so heavily with science like why not stick to science writing or opinion pieces or essays I guess it's the same question as what we're talking about with gas but I mean like why poetry yeah why poetry for you do you think um well I'm a poet (laughs) 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 I do write essays but I think that um it just annoys me that so much writing pretends that technology doesn't exist mm. when it's such a huge part of our lives. Um, yeah, and it, oh, quite often it's in young adult fiction too. You're kind of like <laughs> you're reading this book and nobody has a phone. Yeah. <laughs> and so, they, you know, I, I guess it's convenient if you're trying to sort of, you know, create conflict or drama. <laughs> but I just think it's, it's, yeah, why can't we just acknowledge the world that we're living in and now and, and why can't poetry be part of that? But um, but also that fragmentary nature of poetry and the way that it distills um, things down into their essence, and also the I think I I think I talked about it a bit at the launch last week that um, the fact that with a poetry collection and especially one about technology, it sort of gets takes on a new meaning that the way that the poems can talk to each other and talk to other texts there's this intertextuality that can occur which begins to mimic um, a flow of knowledge and data and information that starts to feel a bit like analog hyperlinks Mm. I just think that there's there's things that you can do in poetry that you can't do in other forms 
and it's fun. Yeah, <laughs> it certainly is. It certainly is as a reader, that's for sure. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? Um, always scared to be in binaries, but I just <laughs> this idea the po- the poetry book wears its influence quite unashamedly. Like, I mean, you know, like um, there are what are described as found poems in there. And I just wondered, I don't think I asked you this previously, so don't worry if you haven't got an answer, but I'm just wondering, do you think that's a gendered thing? Like, um, I was just thinking about, you know, this image of the original genius that sort of, like, I really, I did romantic literature a lot at university, and, you know, there was this idea of this man on a rock by himself, <laughs> you know, like, everything's original, Bah, bah, bah. you know it comes yeah, in yeah and then look at food. Wordsworth like pulling out all his sister's writing from her journals yeah so original douche <laughs> okay so maybe it's just a falsehood <laughs> but do you think I do feel like there has been something there is something maybe even just getting away from the gendered idea but what can you talk a little bit about the idea of a found poem is there any anxiety in a found poem like is there you know like how does one approach the use of something that already exists? So when I started writing this collection, the um, the first couple of poems I wrote, like maybe half a dozen poems I wrote were found poems, and then my supervisor was getting a bit anxious about it. She was like, are they all going to be found poems? Um, as if that was, you know, I don't know, it seemed a bit like, you know, because it's not, yeah, it's got to be an original <laughs> piece of writing and yeah like there are there's so many anxieties about um originality that whole Harold Bloom thing about the anxiety of influences is interesting to me you know what did he say there's no such thing as an original poem every new poem is a misreading or a misinterpretation of an earlier poem influence is unavoidable and inescapable and it is it is and I think when you're doing huge amounts of research, there's just no way that you can stop it influencing your writing. And so I just I don't see the point in pretending that it's just um, come from this amazing font of you know some kind of inspiration that comes from the ether or anything like that. What's yeah I don't see the point of that. Um, and you know, have you read Reality Hunger? Yeah, mm. David Shields. Yeah, yeah, I love um, it. So I, yeah, I, I sort of I read what he was doing, and I, I thought that was really interesting, and I was a bit irritated with him because I, I wanted to go and look up all his, all his sources, <laughs> yeah. and so he, the only attribution he, he gives is like an appendix at the end of the book, and it's basically of for people who haven't read it, it's basically just a, a collage of quotes. But the way that he um, curates and in inverted commas them all and the, the order he places them in, and, you know, the, and where which quotes sit on either side, that it all starts to bring a new meaning to it. And I I loved what he was doing because it just acknowledges it brings up the idea about that we all have anxiety around you know the the ownership of knowledge um, and how knowledge um, can be used for power or to sort of you know the balances of, of equity and I, I I find that really interesting 
Um, and I had been reading um, poems by um, informationists who were also sort of thinking about how how how, how knowledge, how information um, is transmitted and, and through literature and poetry especially. And when I first started researching my book, I was uh, had come across um, the idea that the quantum quantum field theory, um, which is a, a theory in physics, um, how that was influencing poetry and, and how there was a poetics of of connection that was coming out of that. And I, I just thought, well, in science, that's how progress works. Everyone's standing on the shoulders of giants. Research and data is open, um, it's credited, and then it's used to further knowledge. So why are we pretending in literature that the same thing isn't happening? Why are we pretending yeah, that we're all, we're all individual, unique geniuses? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's interesting that you raise that idea of, of gender, because I remember um, as an undergraduate doing um, looking at um, women's writing, there was that seminal text, um, wasn't the mad woman in the attic? Yeah, um, Gilbert and Guga or something, I think those were the authors, and uh, that was really interesting to me, because they, they did talk a bit about um, how there's, um, they, they seem to think that women writers um, had a fear of not being able to create an anxiety around creation due to the fact that they'd been excluded from the canon but but they argued that actually that just gave women writers a freedom you know if you're an outsider then you don't have to follow the rules I've completely segued haven't I but <laughs> it's excellent <laughs> but I think that yeah, so I guess that perhaps the anxiety of influence is perhaps, is perhaps gendered because mm. if you if you don't feel like you're part of a canon, then um, then perhaps you're free to be influenced in a different way or or respond to influences in a different way or not be afraid to say, actually, yeah, I'm influ- I'm influenced by people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because it does seem to be like I really what I really like is the way that um, the connections made clear, you know, the connections kind of uncovered in your book. Um, they do mimic that moment in computing where we were suddenly able to connect things, and you know, like I mean, almost everything we have today is due to that interconnected, mm. you know, like that interconnectedness and. The idea of webs and um, there's I've got a favorite book which I can't remember the title of of course now but it's um, it's on um, on unoriginality and it talks a lot about um, you know um, often often technology based projects where people have rewritten entire texts and um, have just shifted you know things from one place to another and you know it sort of looks at this idea and, and it also looks at sort of fan fiction and mm. stuff like that and I just um, didn't I, like weren't some of your short stories structurally based on other completely completely yeah um there's one that's completely based on a Chekhov story and right. yeah, yeah yeah I um and there's one that just I think uses some diaries from Keats and yeah yeah all sorts of stuff like that so yeah I think I think there is something so interesting and I think that's what makes the book really exciting for me is it it does seem to lay things open in a way um that then you're able to sort of go to that source material and it gets to exist at the same time as the poem does, which I think is quite outstanding, really. 
Yeah, well, I guess I never expected anyone to see me as a genius. <laughs> um, yeah, that's another um, great thing about being outside it. We don't, you know, no one, no And also kind of like, you know, it's just the same sort of 200 people reading all poetry in New Zealand anyway. So it's good. like, I don't know, you feel like you can perhaps take some risks because it doesn't really matter to, you know. The risks oh, aren't too high for that because it just makes such good work. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, the idea of science and poetry? Like, um, my understanding is that Graft um, won an award for science writing, eh? Um, oh, so it was the here's the official. Oh um, yeah. So it was the first ever book of poetry or fiction to be shortlisted for the Royal Society of New Zealand Science Writing Prize. Um, they didn't win the. Um, it was just shortlisted, so it didn't win the actual prize. But one in, in my it, eyes. In my <laughs> eyes, it was a poetry <laughs> one on the day. Poetry <laughs> one on the day. It was a good game. Um, and I'm just wondering um, about that wonderful thing that sometimes poetry can. I'm just thinking about this rise of storytelling mm. in um, science. Oh, you yeah, know, like totally. science and society departments opened up at Vic. Um, Neil Stevenson works with a science company. Um, I think Jeff Vandermeer is working in part of a science, you know, very hard science. And I'm just wondering, you know, that there does seem to be this leap. Um, Neil Stevenson talked really interesting about how, interestingly, about how. Um, yeah, how um, technologists and um, 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 engineers were sort of saying, well, we, we need more science fiction because it helps us, you know, see the way through. And, yeah, I don't know, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, definitely. I think that it's, it's been a few years now that um, science communicators have been acknowledging the importance of narrative um, in their work. And um, so, yeah, but I think it was 2000... 13, 14, I was 13, I was invited by the, um, the New Zealand um, Association of, of Scientists to present at their conference and I just thought, wow, that's incredible and, and I did, and I talked about um, yeah, how metaphor and narrative can aid science communication but I think I actually was preaching to the converted, I think that it wasn't, I mean they, they I brought up some <laughs> there were some new things I talked about, but I don't think that the concept itself um, was a huge surprise. I think that you know there were heads nodding, and um, it's. I mean, the science communication itself isn't. Um, it's quite a new um, era, field of of research. Um, I think it's only really been since the nineties that it's, it's evolved as a field. Um, and I think that they have been really open to finding different ways of connecting with people. I think that in the 90s there was a lot of struggling around, um, there was a lot of fear around science and, well, not just science, but the um, things like um, uh, mad cow disease, foot and mouth disease, um, all these things that were in the public eye and it hadn't necessarily been responded to very well. Um, th um, the PR was really bad, basically. Mm -hmm. And there was a sort of public distrust was building in science. And I think that it was a time where um, 
people who were interested in communicating about science um, realised that things had to change and the way that they interacted with the public had to change. So I think that they they realised quite quickly that it was important to be open to different ways of communicating because what they'd been doing in the past hadn't been necessarily working that well. Mm. Yeah. Because that's what I found even when I did that a little bit with engineers as well is that so many of the fields are becoming so specialised mm-hmm. that often it's a communication job between specialists totally. as well, totally. which I think, um, you know, it's really interesting to see how that communication takes place. Do you want to talk, I know, sorry, I know you did this um, um, <laughs> presentation years ago, but what is, how is metaphor useful? Um, well, it goes back to what I was saying about the way um, the, the brain works, mm. the fact that um, that you can um, basically get into, I won't call it brainwashing, <laughs> <laughs> but you can kind of instruct people in a way through, by using metaphor, by using narrative, the, the way that um, neurologically we, we react to metaphor and narrative, the way that that sort of creates an empathy, that's a great thing. I use the word exploit tentatively, mm, mm. but it's a great it's a great um, tool to have in your toolbox as a communicator to be thinking about how people respond to that way of writing in in, in comparison to sort of um, straightforward reportage. Mm. Yeah, I mean even reportage is. Has changed. I mean, post-war, there's been a major shift in in, in that towards um, um, being influenced by literature and narrative. Mm. Um, I like this idea of the stories that we tell ourselves and how that can sometimes build the science that we make. You know, in our attitudes towards science. And I did. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Westworld. Well, I want to talk a lot about Westworld. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm just. <laughs> interested you know like there was an article the other day sort of on musk up against um up against mark zuckerberg about whether the whether ai is going to destroy us and no you know and i'm just wondering what do you have to say about westworld just yeah like i mean (laughs) go go yeah 30 seconds starting from now but you had some ideas about this idea of um um, being asleep yeah false consciousness and waking and you know and i guess Dare we drop in the word sentience and yeah, like I don't know. Yeah, well, I think that yeah. While I was, I, I just well, for starters, oh my god, Westworld that's been rocking my world. Mm. Um, so the one of the the most exciting things about Westworld for me is the way that um, these characters are slowly waking up. And, and part of that um, waking up is it's an amazing empowerment. And so these beings that had been, um, that had anything done to them that, that people wanted to do. So they were, they were dolls that could be raped or um, abused in any way, killed in, in any way that one, someone wanted to imagine. And then their memories, sort of, um, their conscious memories wiped. We find out later that subconsciously they've retained that. Once once they've um, become enlightened, they've they can recall these memories. But the fact that um, they could, there was there seemed to be no 
uncomfortableness surrounding this abuse. Um, and then these, then these beings are, are waking and are, yeah, sort of thinking about sort of false consciousness and, and thinking about how um, in Marxist theory it's sort of thinking, um, denoting people's inability to, to recognise their own oppression and how, yeah, as these, as these beings wake, they get woke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, as, as it sort of, as that slowly developed over the two seasons, I, I was sort of getting quite excited about what they were saying and the fact that the, the two main characters that were becoming woke were these two women, and one of them was a woman of colour, and I was thinking, yeah, because at first I was thinking, is, is that what they're saying? Or is that just me, wishful, you know, wishful thinking? And, but actually, I think it, I think it really is. Yeah. <laughs> and I find that really, ex- yeah, really exciting. Um, what do you like about Westworld? Ah, um, yes. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. The thing that I'm really interested in, in it is... Um, um, yeah, I'm really interested about how we don't understand what consciousness is, mm. and we don't understand what sentience is, and we don't understand what it is to be human. And I just like the idea that um, a lot of the sentience and consciousness in the program is a virus. You know, mm. like it's a mistake, it's yeah, a malfunction. Yeah. And um, it was the same I'm, with human genetics. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I just find that really interesting. And coming back to your work, it's another thing I find really interesting is that so much of what we do is pattern and you know we, we recognize something as mimicking yeah. care and mimicking um, consciousness and mimicking interest and I'm really interested in that idea have like, you read that book the, the most human human no so this guy um, um, is is going there's an annual meetup where people working in AI Bring their AI and they um, and they try they test it out and they try and get people to figure out whether or not the AI is is human. So so there'll be conversations going on with people who are in another room. So there'll be some humans and some um, AI, and the testing panel needs to try and figure out which ones are human and which <laughs> ones are AI. And this guy um, who wrote the book he. He was trying to be the most human human, so he was trying to, really trying to sort of stem. He was he was one of the, the people in the other room, talking to the testing panel, trying to convince them that he was human. So he was thinking, you know, what is it to be human? You know, oh, we make mistakes. We because they were chatting via um, uh, text, mm-hmm. so he was working on a keyboard. So he was trying to make sure that he made some um, spelling errors and and um, yeah, and I found that really interesting. And he did. Um, I think he did end up being the most human human and he was really pleased with himself but 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 all those anxieties surrounding that so the yeah. Turing test the Turing test even Turing said about the Turing test really the main thing is um, not whether or not the AI is sentient but whether we think it is mm, yeah. so it's nothing in the end it doesn't really matter if they're, they're sentient or not it's whether we're buying into the fact that they are, and so that this this competition, the most human human, and the, or the most human AI, is really it's about whether or not they can trick people into thinking that they're sentient. Um, and and that, and one of the computers programs did recently, and I I just think that's quite an interesting thing too. Is like not the fact that it really is 
sentient it's just that we believe it's sentient and if we believe it is then may, well, maybe that's the first step to sentient and me being the um, depressive fuck that I am also it buys back the other way do you know what I mean like that's the thing that blows my mind it's like if I'm believing people are real <laughs> do you know what I mean like yeah, yeah. humans like if I'm believing that that's an act of kindness or that's an act of aggression or that's an act of you know like it's that weird illusion that we sort of you know in these loops that are building into our lives and that's what's going on so brilliantly in Westworld it's kind Mm. of like um yeah is any of this are any of my actions real like all these things that I'm because they're on these loops these androids are, are just looping on these narratives and you know what meaning is there in my life am I just a set of loops endlessly running through a program yeah what am I unique (laughs) (laughs) yeah are are any of us and in some ways I think that even though yeah I think these androids can be seen as as a metaphor for like us struggling with our own humanity you know what makes us special what makes us unique Mm -hmm. are we original yeah and and in Westworld yeah, like even the um, so in 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 Westworld, there's there's one set of characters, and then the writer, um, in in Shogun World, just kind of completely plagiarized yeah, himself <laughs> and recreated the same character. So it's I, I found that hilarious. That was like one of my favorite moments when you when we realized that. That well, that's one of them, and that's one of them. And, oh my goodness! <laughs> was like, I only, I didn't have enough time to write a whole new set of storylines. I thought, oh yeah, you and me both, mate. We've all been there. <laughs> We've all been there. But, and I think this is what I find really interesting, and especially in your book, it brings up these questions of how we're going to relate. Like I um, I heard a um article the other day which was talking about um I think it's a new Amazon the Echoes eh the ones that talk anyway those ones and they've made one for children and it responds to manners like if you ask it please it will answer and if you forget to say please and this this weird thing where we have and it's very interesting to hear I think people that are native to this talking AI stuff they relate in a very different way to these strange boxes that are in our houses. And I just think that's another thing that I think is interesting about Westworld is that, you know, like what what life matters and what life doesn't and what experience matters and what experience doesn't. But, yeah, I just... And also that we think that we shape technology, but then technology begins to shape us in the way that we respond. So we're kind of... Uh, early attempts at AI are kind of clumsy so we make allowances for it and we respond in a certain way to help mm. the AI help us mm. and so there, thereby that's it's shaping our behavior mm. I think that's and also like that um there's i think at the last conference google um or alphabet showed this um thing that would ring up and make appointments for you oh yeah did you hear it and it was just and the people were like well it's got to say what it is you know and like we almost announce it yeah we've got it almost inbuilt a robot voice or else we're going to freak out like yeah i guess that's maybe just an oral or oral um uncanny valley yeah because they did actually sound i listened to a recording and they did actually sound quite Human. And all the ums and ahs, like they've put in all those things that that guy was doing. Yeah. It was so weird. Yeah. And um, so can we talk a little bit, just to finish off a little bit about post-humanism? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> <laughs> but um, the book deals so wonderfully with grief and um, 
also with these ideas of, um, you know, we're living in such a strange moment where there are these incredibly rich people who believe that they're going to live forever. Like, I mean, not only do they get to own this, they seem to have a very true belief that they're going to own everything forever. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just wondering... When are we real and when are we not? You know, just have you got anything to say about that? Like, what is that reincarnation going to look like for anyone? I don't know. Like, what are your thoughts? We're we're real when we say we're real. We're real when when our loved ones acknowledge us, I guess. Yeah, I feel so uncomfortable about the inequity surrounding this, the whole movement and post-humanism I mean obviously there is sort of this, this anarchic group of post-humanists who are body hacking mm. and doing things to themselves like you know inserting magnets under their skin and um, yeah electrodes that will communicate with electrics in their house but I think as far as that whole idea of sort of living forever goes it, it does seem to be like the, the Elon Musks of the world that are, are have got the money and the the drive to push that through and it it starts to feel a bit distasteful <laughs> when you think about who's going to be left behind. Yeah, what was that movie recently where um, where there was a whole elite? Group oh of yeah, people? Uh, it had a special a, a silly, it had a special word that's poetic. I think it's a Shelley. I think it's a Shelley um, poem. <laughs> I think was it called a silly? I can't remember. Yes, that. yes, yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> Yeah, so the, yeah, similar thing was happening in, in that, you know, basically there was this elite group of hyper-rich people who um, were could afford to stay young and beautiful forever and they just kept um, backing up their brains and, I mean, that's a, that's a dystopian take on it, I mean, yeah, wouldn't it be great if, if we could um, have healthy bodies and live in comfort and not be frail and sickly towards the ends of our lives but yeah I guess yeah, what are the implications of living f- forever and if the only people living forever are assholes yeah. <laughs> I can't think about heaven like you know sometimes every now and then someone would tell me about who was going to heaven and I'd think well that sounds a bit dull yeah yeah I think would rather be in hell yeah, yeah. I think it's a bit and I think um, it's just so bizarre all that stuff as well like just when you think about how much help that money could be to people living right now yeah, and, exactly. yeah just and I know people shouldn't I don't know some people think people shouldn't give away money but is there really any need to be a bit yeah, I don't know. Maybe. What What is all the money doing? I mean, it's a, yeah. It's just yeah. I guess it's just moving around. I don't know. I just and this is going to get me set on a whole kind of anti corporation <laughs> rant. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what I think is wonderful. I was just thinking about the amazing poem in here, which is um, the um, I never remember the man that makes the walking wind machine. Oh, Teo Janssen. Yeah, and like I just love this this sort of DIY, almost craft technology, yeah. which is so exciting. It's quite punk, eh? Yeah. yeah. And it does feel like, I know there's still a digital divide, but it does feel like, um, you know, that it's incredible what can be done, you know. I'm a big fan of, like, just, yeah, that, that whole DIY aesthetic of just, actually, you just kind of jerry-rig something together and make it work, and in some ways that's the most exciting um, technology to me is that when you're just patching stuff together 
rather than the big, shiny, glossy corporate advances, which really, I don't know, they never seem to be for the good of humanity. (laughs) Funnily (laughs) enough. (laughs) Yeah, it seems to be. If you put more minds to it, it comes to a leveling. Like, I was just thinking with... Yeah, hive mind. Yeah, hive mind. And I was just thinking about that sort of cobbling together as well. Um, You know, I think about education as well you know like a a friend of mine decided they wanted to play the ukulele very young friend and um you know and I was like should we find a teacher you need to learn the chords and what they did was youtubed a couple of songs that they wanted they found an app on their phone that could show them where to put their fingers (laughs) and like all of a sudden they wanted to play one song on the ukulele they learned how to play one song on the ukulele and And that was enough yeah this is just this incredible and through learning that one song they can now play I don't know like there just seems to be this amazing access I don't know, like, people want to be dystopian about it, but it's also pretty amazing. Yeah, totally. Well, like, my daughter is another example. So she she wanted to have a macrame potholder. Um, she couldn't find one. She looked on YouTube, <laughs> found some string in the house, and hacked one together. And it was, like, really cool and amazing. And I just think, yeah, uh, that's what's one of the most exciting things about human beings is that they can figure stuff out and yeah once once you start sharing information like we were saying before about the way knowledge is passing once you you open that up and democratize that then that's when exciting things start to happen and once people can talk about those sorts of things opening up communication about that then they they can build to to an exponential rate I think and so that suddenly we can make advances and I that's one of the reasons why we're making more and more technological and scientific advances, I think, is that there's more, there's global communication happening, whereas, you know, back at the, in the Renaissance, where, you know, Galileo, there was a, a small, very small amount of people that were talking to each other, um, and the progress was really slow, and now anyone can contribute and anyone can make things grow f- faster and faster, which is that makes it sound slightly scary. <laughs> but I think that, again, it just comes back to what's so generous about your book, is that, like, if I, if there's a point in here that I'm interested in, you've left me open so that I can go and look at that and then create my own work on top of that. And I just think, I don't know, I really love it. I think, I don't know, like, I, I guess, I guess that... It does get it, which is kind of interesting because it buys into that fear of not being the original and not being the, um, and I guess that's what we sort of have to get over a little bit in some ways, eh? So let go of our egos a bit, yeah. Damn it. Oh, my ego is pretty, well, I'd I'd (laughs) like to think my ego is small. (laughs) Maybe it's not. (laughs) Hey, thank you so much, Helen. Is there anything else you want to say? Have I missed you? I just want to say that was a great conversation. It was a really cool conversation. Thank you so much. Mm.